This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chekris, London, UK. The Idle Thoughts of an Idle Fellow by Jerome K. Jerome. Section 4. On Being Hard Up. It is a most remarkable thing. I sat down with the full intention of writing something clever and original, but for the life of me I can't think of anything clever and original, at least not at this moment. The only thing I can think about now is being hard up. I suppose having my hands in my pockets has made me think about this. I always do sit with my hands in my pockets, except when I'm in the company of my sisters, my cousins, or my aunts, and they kick up such a shindy—I should say, expostulate so eloquently upon the subject—that I have to give in and take them out. My hands, I mean. The chorus to their objections is that it is not gentlemanly. I am hanged if I can see why. I could understand it's not being considered gentlemanly to put your hands in other people's pockets, especially by the other people. But how, O oh ye sticklers for what looks this and what looks that, can putting his hands in his own pockets make a man less gentle? Perhaps you are right, though. Now I come to think of it, I have heard some people grumble most savagely when doing it but they were mostly old gentlemen. We young fellows, as a rule, are never quite at ease unless we have our hands in our pockets. We are awkward and shifty. We are like what a music-hall lion comique would be without his opera hat, if such a thing can be imagined. But let us put our hands in our trousers' pockets, and let there be some small change in the right-hand one and a bunch of keys in the left— and we will face a female post-office clerk. It is a little difficult to know what to do with your hands, even in your pockets, when there is nothing else there. Years ago, when my whole capital would occasionally come down to what in town the people call a bob, I would recklessly spend a penny of it, merely for the sake of having the change all in coppers to jingle. You don't feel nearly so hard up with eleven pence in your pocket as you do with a shilling. Had I been la-di-da, that impecunious youth about whom we superior folk are so sarcastic, I would have changed my penny for two halfpennies. I can speak with authority on the subject of being hard up. I have been a provincial actor— if further evidence be required, which I do not think likely, I can add that I have been a gentleman connected with the press. I have lived on fifteen shilling a week. I have lived a week on ten, owing the other five. And I have lived for a fortnight on a greatcoat. It is wonderful what an insight into domestic economy being really hard up gives one. If you want to find out the value of money, live on fifteen shillings a week, and see how much you can put by for clothes and recreation. 
you will find out that it is worth while to wait for the farthing change, that it is worth while to walk a mile to save a penny, that a glass of beer is a luxury to be indulged in only at rare intervals, and that a collar can be worn for four days. Try it just before you get married. It will be excellent practice. Let your son and heir try it before sending him to college. He won't grumble at a hundred a year pocket money then. There are some people to whom it would do a world of good. There is that delicate blossom who can't drink any claret under ninety-four, and who would as soon think of dining off cat's meat as off plain roast mutton. You do come across these poor wretches now and then, though, to the credit of humanity, they are principally confined to that fearful and wonderful society known only to lady novelists. I never hear of one of these creatures discussing a menu card, but I feel a mad desire to drag him off to the bar at some common East End public house and cram a sixpenny dinner down his throat. Beefsteak pudding, fourpence, potatoes, a penny, half a pint of porter, a penny. The recollection of it, and the mingled fragrance of beer, tobacco, and roast pork generally leaves a vivid impression, might induce him to turn up his nose a little less frequently in the future at everything that is put before him. Then there is that generous party, the cadger's delight, who is so free with his small change, but who never thinks of paying his debts. It might teach even him a little common sense. I always give the waiter a shilling. One can't give the fellow less, you know, explained a young government clerk with whom I was lunching the other day in Regent Street. I agreed with him as to the utter impossibility of making it elevenpence halfpenny, but at the same time I resolved to one day decoy him to an eating-house I remembered near Covent Garden, where the waiter, for the better discharge of his duties, goes about in his shirt-sleeves, and very dirty sleeves they are, too, when it gets near the end of the month. I know that waiter. If my friend gives him anything beyond a penny— the man will insist on shaking hands with him then and there as a mark of his esteem. Of that I feel sure. There have been a good many funny things said and written about hard-uppishness, but the reality is not funny for all that. It is not funny to have to haggle over pennies. It isn't funny to be thought mean and stingy. It isn't funny to be shabby and to be ashamed of your address. No, there is nothing at all funny in poverty to the poor. It is hell upon earth to a sensitive man, and many a brave gentleman who would have faced the labours of Hercules has had his heart broken by its petty miseries. It is not the actual discomforts themselves that are hard to bear. Who would mind roughing it a bit if that were all it meant? What cared Robinson Crusoe for a patch on his trousers? Did he wear trousers? I forget. Or did he go about as he does in the pantomimes? What did it matter to him if his toes did stick out of his boots? And what if his umbrella was a cotton one, so long as it kept the rain off? His shabbiness did not trouble him. 
there was none of his friends round about to sneer him. Being poor is a mere trifle. It is being known to be poor that is the sting. It is not cold that makes a man without a great coat hurry along so quickly. It is not all shame at telling lies, which he knows will not be believed, that makes him turn so red when he informs you that he considers great coats unhealthy and never carries an umbrella on principle. It is easy enough to say that poverty is no crime. No, if it were, men wouldn't be ashamed of it. It's a blunder, though, and is punished as such. A poor man is despised the whole world over, despised as much by a Christian as by a lord, as much by a demagogue as by a footman, and not all the copy-book maxims ever set for ink-stained youth will make him respected. Appearances are everything, so far as human opinion goes, and the man who will walk down Piccadilly arm-in-arm arm with the most notorious scamp in London, provided he is a well-dressed one, will slink up a back street to say a couple of words to a seedy-looking gentleman. And the seedy-looking gentleman knows this, no one better, and will go a mile round to avoid meeting an acquaintance. Those that knew him in his prosperity need never trouble themselves to look the other way. He is a thousand times more anxious that they should not see him than they can be, and as to their assistance, there is nothing he dreads more than the offer of it. All he wants is to be forgotten, and in this respect he is generally fortunate enough to get what he wants. One becomes used to being hard up, as one becomes used to everything else, by the help of that wonderful old homeopathic doctor, Time. You can tell at a glance the difference between the old hand and the novice, between the case-hardened man who has been used to shift and struggle for years, and the poor devil of a beginner striving to hide his misery, and in a constant agony of fear lest he should be found out. Nothing shows this difference more clearly than the way in which each will pawn his watch. As the poet says somewhere, true ease in pawning comes from art, not chance. The one goes into his uncle's with as much composure as he would into his tailor's, very likely with more. The assistant is even civil, and attends to him at once, to the great indignation of the lady in the next box, who, however, sarcastically observes that she don't mind being kept waiting if it is a regular customer. Why, from the pleasant and business-like manner in which the transaction is carried out, it might be a large purchase in the three per cents. Yet what a piece of work a man makes of his first pop! A boy popping his first question is confidence itself compared with him. He hangs about outside the shop until he has succeeded in attracting the attention of all the loafers in the neighbourhood, and has aroused strong suspicions in the mind of the policeman on the beat. At last, after a careful examination of the contents of the windows, made for the purpose of impressing the bystanders with the notion that he is going in to purchase a diamond bracelet, or some such trifle, 
he enters, trying to do so with a careless swagger, and giving himself really the air of a member of the swell mob. When inside, he speaks in so low a voice as to be perfectly inaudible, and has to say it all over again. When, in the course of his rambling conversation about a friend of his, the word lend is reached, he is promptly told to go up the court on the right and take the first door round the corner. He comes out of the shop with a face that you could easily light a cigarette at, and firmly under the impression that the whole population of the district is watching him. When he does get to the right place, he has forgotten his name and address, and is in a general condition of hopeless imbecility. Asked in a severe tone how he came by this, he stammers and contradicts himself, and it is only a miracle if he does not confess to having stolen it that very day. He is thereupon informed that they don't want anything to do with his sort, and that he had better get out of this as quickly as possible, which he does, recollecting nothing more until he finds himself three miles off, without the slightest knowledge how he got there. By the way, how awkward it is, though, having to depend on public houses and churches for the time. The former are generally too fast, and the latter too slow. Besides which, your efforts to get a glimpse of the public-house clock from the outside are attended with great difficulties. If you gently push the swing door ajar and peer in, you draw upon yourself the contemptuous looks of the barmaid, who at once puts you down in the same category with area sneaks and cadgers. You also create a certain amount of agitation among the married portion of the customers. You don't see the clock because it is behind the door, and in trying to withdraw quietly you jam your head. The only other method is to jump up and down outside the window. After this latter proceeding, however, if you do not bring out a banjo and commence to sing, the youthful inhabitants of the neighbourhood, who have gathered round in expectation, become disappointed. I should like to know, too, by what mysterious law of nature it is, that before you have left your watch to be repaired half an hour, "'someone is sure to stop you in the street "'and conspicuously ask you the time. "'Nobody even feels the slightest curiosity on the subject "'when you've got it on. "'Dear old ladies and gentlemen who know nothing about being hard up, "'and may they never bless their grey old heads, "'look upon the pawn-shop as the last stage of degradation. "'But those who know it better and my readers have no doubt noticed this themselves, are often surprised, like the little boy who dreamed he went to heaven, at meeting so many people there that they never expected to see. For my part, I think it a much more independent course than borrowing from friends, and I always try to impress this upon those of my acquaintance who incline toward wanting a couple of pounds till the day after to-morrow but they won't all see it. One of them once remarked that he objected to the principle of the thing. I fancy if he had said it was the interest that he objected to, he would have been nearer the truth. 
twenty-five per cent, certainly does come heavy. There are degrees in being hard up. We are all hard up, more or less, most of us more. Some are hard up for a thousand pounds, some for a shilling. Just at this moment I am hard up myself for a fiver. I only want it for a day or two. I shall be certain of paying it back within a week at the outside. And if any lady or gentleman among my readers would kindly lend it me, I should be very much obliged indeed. They could send it to me under cover to Messrs. Field and Tewer. Only, in such case, please let the envelope be carefully sealed. I would give you my IOU as security. End of section 4